Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Grab your Bible. Please turn to Psalm chapter 36. If you don't bring a Bible, there's a hardback black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. That's where we're going to be. Please open it. Please use it today And uh, if you didn't bring your own. It'll also be on the screen, but I, always, I think it's best when you've got your word in your hand. God's word is speaking to you. And so please take your Bible and open it. Everybody there? Amen? All right. I just love that song that our choir has done for us. God, God is worthy. When the world is broken, when darkness seems to hide Him, He's worthy. Amen. Okay, so we're in Psalm chapter 36, and we'll be focusing today on verses 1 to 7, mainly on verse 5, 6, and 7. So if you'll remember last week, uh, and, and before I get into it, I, I just want to let you know, uh, in a couple weeks, in June, we're going to be getting into the book of Exodus, and we're going to be trying to answer three questions from the book of Exodus. Who am I? Who am I? So we're going to look at Moses' life and our lives and see how God has created us, who God has created us to be, and how God might use fallen people, broken people, for His glory. So I can't wait for that. Cannot wait for that. So the second question that we're going to ask in the book of Exodus is, who is God? Who am I? Who is God? And then the third question is, who are we? Who are we together? Who am I? Who is God? And who are we? That has everything to do with God and His church in this season of life. So that's, that's where I'm going in, in June. Can't wait to start and kick off in June. Um. And, and I've been praying through, like, what would I say in those weeks to come? And this, this chapter of the book of Psalms was very challenging and very beautiful for me specifically. And so I just felt like it would be something good for us. So, verses 1 to 4. Let me recap where we were last week, okay? Last week, chapter, verses 1 to 4, give us the picture of the wicked. Um, who have unrestrained transgression in their heart. It's left unchecked, speaking to them. And where sin goes unchecked, the fear of God diminishes, and ultimately, the fear of God is destroyed altogether. That's what we looked at last week. God is dethroned from that person's heart. And when we, when we do that, when we leave that uh, alone, we, we, when we don't have the, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, that is... He's dethroned and, and truly in our hearts He's slain. We kill Him. We, we, don't, we don't set Him as Lord, but we crucify Him. And when there's no fear of God in the eyes of man, it's easy to overlook our own sin. And when God isn't seen as holy, 
My sin isn't seen as evil. So the absence of the fear of God, the absence of the fear of God leads mankind to flatter ourselves with smooth talk, deceitful words, and deceptive words that keep me from seeing the reality of my soul, and I can't find out sin and hate it. And so if, if you look at the screen, I think I have the ways we talked about how we flatter ourselves, the ways that we flatter ourselves. And so I, it'll be up on the screen. Now, how do we flatter ourselves before God? Number one is we justify our sin. We say, oh, it ain't that bad. Or, or that's not really sinful. I mean, culture tells me a little different, and so that's how we flatter ourselves. Secondly, we just outright cover it up. We sweep it under the rug. We, we bury it way down deep inside. We cover it. We cover it. So we don't talk about it. Third is we reject, we reject um, good. We reject sound doctrine. We reject true, true teaching. We reject, we reject that evil is actually evil. And that's exactly what we see happening in so much of Christendom. I'll, I'll use that in parentheses, in Christendom. We, this, they're just rejecting what is true. We compare ourselves to others. This is how we flatter ourselves. We compare ourselves to other, others. And if I compare myself to somebody, I can always find somebody worse off than I am. A bigger sinner than I am, and therefore I can feel good about myself. And we resist. We resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And let me just tell you... If the Holy Spirit is not convicting you, if the Holy Spirit is not speaking truth to you, if the Holy Spirit is sometimes not confront you in uncomfortable ways, you are not following Jesus. You're following a God made in your own image, not the God of the Bible. I mean, let me just tell you the beautiful truth. If the Holy Spirit's not speaking to you, the book of Hebrews says that you're not children of God. But the beautiful part of that is the, whole, the, the, the Word of God says that if God disciplines you, He does it because He loves you. So His discipline is a sign of His love. It's a seal of His redemption. If God's not speaking to you to convict you of sin, then we're in danger. We're in danger. And so we looked at that last week. We looked at that last week. And so if I flatter myself, what I'm really doing is it's keeping me from the reality of seeing my sin-sick soul. Do you remember the movie Weekend at Bernie's? Anybody ever remember that movie? All you sinners in here, raise your hand. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Glad I'm not the only one. That was a risk for me. Um, so I remember the movie Weekend at Bernie's. And the whole, the whole movie is about two guys that they, they, Bernie, they go to Bernie's and they find Bernie dead. And so then for the whole entire weekend, they have to prop Bernie up and so that everybody around them thinks that Bernie is alive, so that they can have this awesome weekend. And let me tell you, if we flatter our sin-sick soul, that's all that we're doing, is we're propping up a life that is, in fact, dead. It has the, the view of being alive. We just want to show ourselves as being alive, but inside, our hearts are dead. And so the person described in verses 1 to 4 is just that, spiritually dead. Or maybe as Jesus would say, they're they're like a cup clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. They're like a tomb that's whitewashed on the outside and filled with dead man's bones. Or maybe Jesus would say it like this in Revelation chapter 2. They have the reputation of being alive, but in fact they're dead. His words and his thoughts condemn him. His ways are not good. He doesn't reject and hate sin. He's unwilling to find his own, own, own sin. Now, can I just be honest? The, the reality of verses 1 to verse 4 is this is where all of us are or were. 
And you're either in one of those two camps. You either were dead in your sin, or you still are dead in your sin. And you were dead in your sin, and you've now experienced the life-giving gospel, good news that Jesus came to die for your punishment and raised for your life. Or if you've not trusted in what Jesus has done, you're still there. You're still, you still find yourself in verses 1 to 4. And you're justifying and you're covering. You're rejecting and you're resisting. That's our story. Now, if you think I'm being too hard, I'm just trying to use Jesus' language, biblical words. Or in Paul's words, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. And that's bad news for each one of us. But last week we ended with how do we guard ourselves from becoming that person? How do we guard ourselves from becoming this person? And we do it in three ways. The the first way we guard ourselves is a regular, prayerful, spirit-filled reading of God's Word. And so I just want to remind you, if you're not in the Bible every day, there is that tendency to overlook things in our life. If, If you're not praying and asking the Spirit to fill your time as you read His Word, you can read the Bible, but it's different when the Bible reads you. You can read the Bible all day long, you can find out all the facts, but it's different when the Holy Spirit uses the Bible as the sword of the Spirit, which cuts you and exposes you and heals you. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're not reading the Bible, we have some Bible reading plans out there at the Welcome Center. We just want you to get into the Bible. The second way that we do that is we, we become a part of a Bible-believing, gospel-centered community. We do that. That means church. We preach God's Word. We believe the gospel transforms the dead into the living. And so you need to be a part of that kind of community. And let me just tell you, if you expect to come to this community and find a perfect community, you have come to the wrong community. Amen? We're not perfect. In fact, we're works in progress. Starting in most, most glaringly obvious, your pastor is a work in progress. He doesn't have it all together. He doesn't have all the answers. But God's working in his life. And I, I, I just know that if he can work in my life, he can work in yours too. God doesn't expect perfection out of you. Isn't that good news? But he does desire for you and for me that we would be taking steps toward holiness. And we do that in community. And so if you're interested in becoming a member of Seneca Baptist Church, we've got a new member class or new member orientation starting in June. And so we want you to come and be a part of that. If you're interested in but knowing what it might look like, come spend six weeks with us in June and in, in, in early July. Come spend six weeks with us and find out what it means to be a part of Seneca Baptist Church. We would love to have you there. More to come on that. And the last thing we do to guard ourselves from becoming this person that we find in, in Psalm 36, 1-4 is we surround ourselves with mighty men and women of God. If, if Jesus had 12 disciples surrounding Him and three on the inside, if Paul had Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and Titus, if, if Moses had Aaron and Hur, don't you think you need somebody too? To help bear the burden? You can't do this alone. You're not made to do this alone. And can I just shameless plug, this is why you should be a part of Sunday school. You should be a part of Sunday school. You should have a small group of people that know you intimately, and you should have an even smaller group of people that are able to speak hard truths into your life. 
And they do it because they love you desperately and they want you to be more like Jesus. And if you don't have those things, let me just tell you, it's, it's not that you're sinning, it's that you're missing out on part of the blessings of the church. And we just want you to come into the blessings of God's church. So the question that we're going to address today is, how in the world does the psalmist go from verses 1 to 4 the description of a spiritually dead person to the person who's worshiping God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his judgments. How does, God, how, how does the psalmist do that? And so here's the thing that I want you to see today. Verses 1 to 4 take a look at the heart of the dead man and they, they kind of take a look into a prison cell of sorts, a dark place. And although it's true of each one of us, if we dwell there, if we live constantly in the sin of our past or in the sins of our present, if we live there, that is a dark place to live. Have you ever lived there? And so when we we constantly, if we live there, we'll constantly live in the shackles of despair, having no hope of release. And so there are two tendencies, two tendencies that come. Tendency number one if I live there, if I live with my sin is number one, I ignore it. I flatter myself and I find comfort in it and I, I, I just don't reject what, what God rejects. I don't hate what God hates. And the second temptation, the second tendency, if I live in my sin or to dwell in my sin is I live in my past. I let my spiritual failures define me and keep me captive and then I focus on my sin. Have you ever been there? That's a dark place. How easy is it to live in our sin? And there are two kinds of pride that kind of undergird both of those tendencies. The first kind of pride says, I'm good enough, I don't need a Savior. And the second kind of pride says, I'm so sinful that even God can't save me. And are either one of those true? No. That's what David's doing here in Psalm 36. He says, 1 to 4, this is who we all are. Psalm Uh, 36 verses 5 to 7. Now take your eyes off of your sin and put your eyes on a Savior. Look at verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord. Your steadfast love. Some versions, I think the King James Version says, your mercy, your mercy, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens extends to the heavens. And so what is David doing? He's taking our eyes off the prison of self and he's putting our eyes on an all-sufficient Savior. He's telling us to look up to the expanse of the heavens, the majesty of the clouds, the, the, the grandeur of the mountains, and the wonder of the ocean depths. He's saying, look away from yourself because you're only going to find prison there. So he says steadfast love. Now that word, steadfast love, is the word chesed. Did I just spit a little bit? Chesed. Okay? Uh, the way that we say that in English is just chesed. H-E-S-E-D is how you'd spell that. And it means mercy or goodness or loving kindness is the way that it's sometimes described. The steadfast love, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God. Where do they go? They extend to the heavens. Do you know one of my favorite verses? One of my favorite verses is Isaiah chapter fifty. Five, I think it's verse 8 and 9, says that God's ways are so much higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Now, um, if you'll 
if you'll do a little study, the, the sun itself, which is nowhere close to the ends of the heavens, is 93 billion miles away. And God says that, that's nothing compared to the height of my steadfast love for my children. He says your steadfast love, it's unfailing, it's steady, it's long-suffering, it's patient, it's love, it's merciful, it's good, it's kind. It's the idea that mercy is the idea that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Isn't that good news? And His steadfast love or His mercy is as high as the heavens. And so the psalmist is saying in the Ryan Perry version that the unfailing, long-suffering, merciful love of God cannot be found out. It cannot be ascended. No SpaceX rocket can reach its heights. It is entirely unsearchable for the human mind. And he says, this is the love of God for you. Isn't that incredible? Verse 1 to 4, this is how ultimately wicked you are. But this is how God loves you. Now, if that makes your brain smoke a little bit, good. They do stand in contrast. You should say, how can it be that a God like that could love a sinner like me? So David's saying, look up. Look up at the heavens. Every time you look up at the sky, every time you take a look up into the night sky and you see the stars, number one, understand that that's only as far as you can see, but that is not as far as the universe goes. And if you can get to the end of the universe, which no telescope has been able to get to the end of the universe thus far, if you can get there, then you can find out the depth of God's steadfast love, the height of His love for you. Isn't that good news? And this is a theme, the steadfast love of God, the, the hesed of God is a theme used throughout all the Old Testament. It's used 250 times. And, 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 and is, this is how God describes himself. Uh, Exodus 34 says it like this. He, he describes himself to Moses. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, or the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Aren't you glad that to you, to sinful people, that God is abounding in steadfast love. Isn't that good? His mercy and His steadfast love. Mercy and steadfast love are God's natural disposition to man. Now look at me. Look at me for a second. I wake you up, shake you alive for a second. Now how many of you, when you think of God, you don't think of God that way? When I think of God, I think of an angry God. He's up on his throne, he's got lightning bolts in his hand, and he is ready to smite you. Some of us, we view God that way. And to view God that way is to view God incorrectly. But some of us view him that way. And we're just, we're just tiptoeing around God, trying not to get him angry at us so that he doesn't punish me some way. And to see him that way is wrong. Mercy the steadfast love of God, mercy and grace, is God's natural disposition to you. Now, is that true of us? No. No. We are very much unlike God. Amen? See, mercy and grace are God's natural disposition, and He has to be provoked to anger. My natural disposition and our natural disposition is anger. And that's why the Bible says that we have to be provoked to love for one another. We need the Spirit in us to cause us to love people. 
God, when God looks at you, He looks at you through a natural disposition of love. Steadfast love. And mercy that's new every morning. And grace that's sufficient for your weakness and your need. I love that we get to serve a God who is like that. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news, church family? And so we see this. We see this. We see David says, look up. Psalm chapter 5, I think we have it on the screen. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 through 7 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. See, his natural disposition is grace, but we have provoked him well. But look at what David says in Psalm chapter 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. But I, David says, here's my hope. My hope for deliverance from my sin is not my works, but rather the abundance of your steadfast love. Or maybe it sounds like Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, which says it like this, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins and what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. So what's Paul say? He echoes what David says. This is what I deserved. But because of God's mercy, His hesed, His steadfast love for you and me, He has caused dead people to live again through faith in Jesus. And so we see David say, look up. Take your eyes off your sin. Don't live there because that does not have to be the end of you. That does not have to be your ultimate definition. That is not who you are any longer. Or I should say that is not who you have to be. And so the idea of God's love and mercy, that they're unchangeable and unsearchable, is the basis of David's confidence that his sins will be forgiven. He'll be reconciled to God and enter into his presence. Second is faithfulness. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds. The word is used 49 times in the Old Testament and 22 of those in the Psalms. And almost half of those times where the the word faithfulness is used, it's used in conjunction with God's steadfast love. The word steadfast love, hesed. So half of the times that faithfulness is used in the book of Psalms, half of those times mercy and faithfulness go hand in hand. That faithfulness is always brought up in relationship to God's mercy. That God is faithful. Isn't that good? That means that God will never give you a promise that He can't keep. That God will never make a deal with you that He will not write a check on. That everything that God says He will do, that He is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And that your salvation and my salvation are not dependent on your actions and my actions, but rather on God's faithfulness to His promise. Why is it such good news 
that God's faithfulness is one of the foundations of our salvation. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds. That's so good. And it reminds us of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. I think we have it on the screen that says, Even if we are faithless, can I stop right there? Have you ever been faithless? Have you ever lived in such a way that did not exhibit and exude faith? I have. It says, if we're faithless, God is what? Faithful. Why? For He cannot deny Himself. To break one of His promises would, would mean that God is not God. And that's good news. What if our salvation was dependent on the amount of our faith? Would you live every day from a place of assurance? Or would you live every day from a place of fear? And truly, some of our brothers and sisters live in this. There, there, there are other tribes in the Christian faith who say, no, 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 it's, it's not about the object of our faith, but rather how much faith do you have? If you had more faith, you wouldn't be going through these things. If you had more faith, then God would love you more. If you had more faith, then God would be more pleased with you. I would live every day in terror. Am I, am I, am I, am I, am I meeting the standard? Am I making the mark? Can I do it? And the answer is, I can't. Do you remember what the disciples asked Jesus one day? They said, Jesus talked about being perfect as the Pharisees are perfect. And they said, who, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Jesus was doing something for us. He was saying that your salvation is not dependent on how faithful you can be because we're all going to fall short of the mark or the standard of faithfulness, but your, your salvation is dependent rather on the object of your faith, not the amount or intensity of your faith. I tell the story that I've told before, I think here in this service, but I've used it in Sunday school before. There's two guys in Egypt at the time of the first Passover, when God says to Moses, tell everybody to slay the Passover lamb. And if you slay the Passover lamb and you put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of the house, then I'll pass over your house. The lamb will have died in your place. I'll look upon the blood of the lamb and I'll pass over. Two guys in Egypt at that time, two Hebrew men, walk up and they meet each other on the street and they say, hey, did you, uh, did you do the thing with the lamb? Did you put it on the doorposts and the lintel of your house? The other says, of course I did. I'm not stupid. He says, I'm, I, if I'm honest, I'm a little afraid of what's coming tonight. Are you not afraid? And the second man says, no, I, I trust God. Bring it on. How can you say that, the first man says. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of scared. I, I, I only have one son. And Charlie, he's my youngest. He's, he's the only son. And if if he dies, I have nobody. I mean, you've got three boys. If one of yours dies, you still got two left. So the question, 
when the angel of judgment passed over the, the house that night, which of those two men's sons were spared? Answer, both of them. The, their redemption was not in the amount of their faith, but in the object of their faith. They had both put the lamb's blood on the door of their house. The angel of death passed over both of them. Why? Because the sufficiency of their salvation was God being faithful to his promise that if you put the lamb's blood there, I'll pass over. It was not in the amount of their faith, but rather the object of their faith and ultimately God's faithfulness to his promise. It's good news for us that his faithfulness reaches to the clouds. His righteousness is like the mighty mountains. His righteousness. And so what we see now is steadfast love and faithfulness, and then we see righteousness and judgment. Steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and judgment. And you go, the two of those don't line up. But the psalmist tells us, these are not on the screen, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Psalm 97, 2. That His righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and His law is truth. Psalm 99, or Psalm 119, 142. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. Psalm 145. His righteousness endures forever. Psalm 111. His justice flows from His righteousness that He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Psalm 9, verse 8. His righteousness will deliver the oppressed because in Psalm 103 it says, The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. God is righteous. That is who He is. And His righteousness is an, ex is an expression of His holiness. God is not righteous because He is measured by your standards or my standards or any other standards. God is the standard of righteousness. The law of God is righteous because the lawgiver is righteous. And He says, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Some will say the mighty mountains. And either one of them is the point is that they are high and they are firm. They're unmovable. And so David says that God's righteousness is unmoving, mighty, constant, and always in view. And then he says, your judgments are like the great deep. Your judgments are like the great deep. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 and 34 says it this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. They're like the great deep. I think it's the Mariana Trench in the middle of the ocean that's some 33,000 feet deep. And it's never been explored. And God says, that's what my judgments are like. The highest mountain is some 29,000 and some change feet tall, Mount Everest. So if you do the picture, you've got five miles high of God's righteousness and five miles deep, almost six miles deep of God's judgments. God's judgments are based on God's righteousness, the highest of heavens to the deep, the Deep, deep parts of the depths. And the question that David is answering for us in Psalm 36 is this. How can God judge us with both perfect righteousness and perfect steadfast love or hesed and faithfulness? 
How can God hate sin and judge it harshly while loving us and dealing gently with us? How can God destroy what He hates in us and save what He loves at the same time? And the answer is found in the cross of Jesus. How does God destroy what He hates, save what He loves? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. There on the cross, God's righteous judgments are poured out. They are aimed in full measure at Jesus, the Son. Why? So that we might experience His love and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus took what we deserved, what we earned for ourselves. Jesus took the full weight of our punishment and He gave to us the full reward of His righteous and holy life. And the psalmist is saying, look up. You want to know how to be saved from verses 1 to 4, the person that you are naturally? You look at God. You go to His steadfast love. You go to His faithfulness and you trust His righteousness and His judgments are just. So what? What do I do with this? Number one, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So if I can just bring this home and close our our time of preaching, I, I just want to say there are two groups of people in this room. One is those who have been saved from verses 1 to 4. And those, there is another group in this room, and there are those who have not been saved from verses 1 to verse 4. You're still living there. And, and in, instead of trusting God's steadfast love and faithfulness, you're flattering yourself by justifying yourself, by covering it up, by comparing yourself by rejecting truth, by resisting the Holy Spirit. You're trying to pull up your own bootstraps and you're trying to be a good little boy or girl so that God might be pleased with you. And if I can just tell you that God is not pleased with you because of what you do, He is pleased with you because of what Jesus did. So much so that when Jesus, or when God looks at you who are saved, God can never be any more pleased with you. Because when He looks at you, what He sees is the perfect life, the perfect righteousness of Jesus hiding you and covering you. We take refuge in the shelter of His wings. We hide in Christ. And that's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Your life is hidden with Christ. So when He looks at you, He can never be any more pleased with you. But if you're over here and you're in this camp that, that you are, are still trying to work your way into heaven, He will never be pleased with you. 
I, I, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 4, says something along these lines. It says, Therefore, because of what Christ has done, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit and, has, and life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For Christ has done what the law could not do. For the law, weakened by the flesh, he goes on to say, has basically produced death for you, but Christ has done what the law has not done. That God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin can save you and make you completely righteous, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in you. So can I just encourage you today? If you're in the group that's never trusted Jesus, you've never trusted in what God can do for you, you've never run to Him for salvation, take refuge in His salvation this morning. Stop trying, start trusting. You can't, Jesus can, did. And second, I think the thing that it causes David to do is to rejoice, even in hardship. David is not talking about himself in verse 1 to 4. He's talking about the wicked. And he says, even when the wicked are doing all these things against me, I, I keep my eyes fixed on God. Or as the author of Hebrews would say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. David worships because of God's salvation. And I just want to encourage you today, if you're saved, live a life of worship. Not because things are going right, but because of Jesus. Today, we're going to conclude. Miss Margaret's going to come play for us, and Christopher is going to lead us. Holly, are you playing also? Holly, I didn't want to leave Holly out. Holly and Miss Margaret are going to be playing. Christopher's going to lead us. And would you just stand with me? Maybe everything that you heard today for you is old news. I know that, Ryan. Praise God that you know it. Maybe it's not old news for you. Maybe today you've heard something that you never did. And I want to encourage you, if you heard something that you've never known before, run to Jesus today. Today's the day of salvation. Trust Jesus today. Open your heart to Christ. Lay down your works and trust in the cross. I'm going to be right here on the front, singing along with you, worshiping along with you. And if you'd like to respond in some way, shape, or form, whether it's just to pray, you want to grab your spouse and come and pray at the altar, you just need some time with the Lord to get some stuff off your chest, you come. But if you want to meet Jesus today, I'd love to help you start that journey of trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thankful for your word, that your word is true, that your word is not dependent on how good a job I do or bad a job I do, but your word is sufficient. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Father, so today, would you grant to some faith and repentance that they might live in Christ.
Thank you for our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.